From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. In the decade following the end of World War II, Ira Hayes may have been one of the most famous Native American men in the United States. He was one of the men in the iconic photograph of the raising of the American flag over Iwo Jima. And on behest of the U.S. military, he traveled around the country, often reenacting the flag raising to sell war bonds. In 1949, he portrayed himself in the movie Sands of Iwo Jima with John Wayne. And over the years, he sat for interviews with newspaper columnists and magazine writers, retelling the story again and again of the flag raising. He was also present on November 10th, 1954, when the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is based on that famous photograph, was dedicated in Washington, D.C. President Dwight Eisenhower was there to shake his hand, and there were active duty Marines in dress blues lining the walk, and they were flanked by an excited crowd, and there were photographers and video cameras. And there was a reporter who walked up to Hayes and asked, how do you like the pomp and circumstance? And Hayes replied, I don't. Hayes' life, his struggles after the war, and his legacy are the subject of a new book, Ira Hayes, The Ockhamill Autumn Warrior, World War II, and the Price of Heroism by Tom Holm. Holm is a professor emeritus of American Indian Studies at the University of Arizona, an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and a Marine Corps veteran of the Vietnam War. And when he returned from that war, he was cared for by his uncles, who had served in World War II. And that's something he has sought to do for other veterans of the wars that have followed Vietnam, and particularly Native American combat veterans. Tom Holm, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Tom, I'm curious about these uncles, these men who helped you transition back home after your war. Would you tell me about them? They were uh, just guys that that, uh, served in the military, and they were uh, very close. My Uncle Charles uh, talked about his experience and asked me about mine. My Uncle Ben uh, did the same. I was also helped by a ceremony that was done for me by a man about, oh, he was in his 50s at the time. This is the going to water ceremony? Yes, it is. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, what it is is that every day he took me out in a uh, in an icy creek bed <laughs> and, and just uh, uh, said some prayers, said said uh, the proper things, and then um, I washed myself. The I guess the proper word for it, and I used it in the uh, book as well, is uh, uh, lustration. Yeah. Yeah. So now you were a young man at this time. You have just gotten back from this very intense experience, this life changing experience. And this guy's like, hey, Tom, let's go down to the creek, the really cold creek (laughs) and and throw yourself in it, basically. As a young man, did you understand why that was important or did that sort of come to you after the fact and as you've reflected on it over the well, years? Yeah, I think my relatives thought it was going to be important. And then another person took me to water and then I uh, got interested and started with a Kiowa friend of mine. Uh, we started, I started gourd dancing at powwows and 
that led to to singing and led to something else. And I, I drew the healing at at different times and at different levels, I suppose. So this was all sort of holistically healing over the years. Yes, sir. Yeah, that sounds that that's about the best way to put it. Yeah. You came home from Vietnam, I think, in 68, and over the next decade, you went to school. You earned your Ph.D. at the University of Oklahoma in 1978. And I'm wondering, like, what was school like during those years where you had had this experience and then, you know, you're on a college campus and you're surrounded, I'm sure, by some veterans, right? The GI Bill was active at that time, but also by a bunch of young people who even if they deeply wanted to understand your experience as a combat veteran, really couldn't. Yeah, I, there were other veterans and there were other uh, uh, Indian people, of course, in, on campus. I got to join the chapter of the National Indian Youth Council and uh, took part in various kinds of activities on campus. And also um, that's where I met my Kiowa friend and he uh, brought me into uh, uh, gourd dancing. Actually, I had a had a good deal of money uh, <laughs> being <laughs> being given to me by the uh, by the VA and other sources. And and after I got my bachelor's, I I got a uh, Ford Foundation scholarship, a doctoral scholarship. Tom, there's there's a complicating layer of this for Native American veterans, right? Like like these men and women serve a nation that stands on the ancestral and stolen lands of indigenous people. The layers of that, the complex layers are very deep. And you recognize pretty early into your academic career that you, you really wanted to help native veterans. Why was that? And, and what were the big issues that you were trying to help them get through? I, I think that, well, one, it was uh, another another person who, who's gone now. I, I kind of respect uh, some of his his ideas by not, you know, bringing up his name. But he was the guy who introduced me into the, the Gord dance. And uh, he's uh, he was Army veteran. And he worked actually at the uh, at one point in time, he worked at the uh, vet center in Oklahoma City. And uh, he's he was just uh, one of the greatest people I know called me up one time and he said, I want you to, I want you to come on this kind of conference that they were, they were getting together out of the vet center. And I said, sure. And he says, and I said, why? And he says, well, you're a veteran of Vietnam and uh, you don't, you don't seem as, as badly off as a lot of <laughs> other guys. And I said, well, thanks. You know? <laughs> I said, but I had I had a good deal of help, and he says, yeah, I know, but uh, you know, I want I, I'd like for you to uh, to uh, help out in that. So that initiated actually a study of of uh, native uh, veterans of Vietnam, and you know, I took it up to uh, and we and we put together a, a survey, and then we then we put together an interview sessions and things like this. I met these guys. I'd meet these guys at powwows and start talking. It was really a, 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 a kind of a difficult uh, sort of study to begin with, uh, mainly because uh, a lot of guys didn't want to talk about it. Uh, but at the same time, 
they wanted to get it out. Uh, and it was better in some ways because they, they always felt that uh, nobody would understand what they're going through and what happened to them. And nobody would really understand it unless they had known about it or they'd known, they had seen it. When did Ira Hayes, who was of your uncle's generation, of the World War II generation, when did he become one of the stories that you realized that you needed to tell? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I did an article, and it, it was about the extent, title, the extent and legacy of Native participation in World War II. Uh, I started off the article by mentioning Ira. I, I didn't really follow up on the World War II angle until much later, and other people had written about it. And then I was asked to do a youth book, actually, on Native people in, uh, uh, in World War II. And uh, then, you know, I guess because of my, I don't know, just long-time experience doing veterans and, and this sort of thing, I was asked to do the, uh, the Ira Hayes book. Hayes was 19 when he enlisted. Uh, just over a year later, he was serving in combat with a parachute battalion in the South Pacific. And, and by the time we get to this moment in his life that he is will forever then be remembered for in Iwo Jima in 1945, this young man had seen quite a bit of combat. Yes, he had. Yeah, he was. He was. By the time they got to to uh, Iwo Jima, he was a he was a true veteran of combat, and uh, he really was always described as a really good marine. And so, they went into uh, Bougainville as a uh, as a unit at that time as the parachute unit in in an operation that was. Uh, uh, that he took part in that was uh, a battle for uh, this, uh, they called it Hell's a Poppin' Ridge. He was part of uh, uh, not only in, in the fighting, but he also uh, was sent up with a, with a small group of his, of his uh, uh, platoon members to uh, recover uh, Marine bodies that were left behind. So, you know, he'd seen it all by the time they even... Uh, got to Iwo Jima. His involvement in the Rosenthal photo sort of happens a little bit by accident. There's this initial flag raising, and then it was decided that maybe that flag wasn't big enough. So there's the second flag raising. That's the one that Joe Rosenthal takes the famous the the famous photo of, and Hayes helped find this big steel pipe to hang the flag on and it's it's heavy so it takes six men to lift it straight um and hayes is one of those men he's the last man on the end right if you're thinking about this this photo or the monument he's like he's the he's the last person on the end there his fingers are just sort of like reaching out toward the pipe yeah he's not even touching it at at in the picture he's not even touching it though what you see is it actually is that when they get the thing up straight Ira actually comes up and then and then takes a hold of it and then puts his weight on it to kind making of, sure that that sucker stays down. Yeah, uh, the main thing about that that uh, photograph was, and was the problem of identifying who was in it. Right, Hayes is one of the men who was 
early and correctly identified in it, but there was some confusion because of the two flag raisings and, you know, the fog of war, who all of those men actually were. He plays a big role in helping identify one of the men who... Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, like, he hitchhiked across the country to tell that man's family. Yeah, he, he did. He hitchhiked, walked, whatever, from, from Arizona to uh, to Texas and told uh, Harlan's father that it was Harlan and not another man, a guy named Hanson, I think, that uh, was in the photo. And so uh, the father told the mother and Mrs. Block, she got her congressman involved and everybody else. So she she really took some uh, uh, took some pains to do that. And so Harlan was finally identified as the person up front who's actually putting the, the pole uh, down in the ground. And this is the thing that becomes a pivot point in Ira Hayes's life. When he gets home, he's called into this very different kind of service. He's asked to travel around and help sell war bonds, in part by reenacting this flag raising again and again. He winds up in this John Wayne movie a few years later after the war is over. Th- this all must have been surreal for him. I would think so. The whole idea, I guess, of, of doing these kinds of things when it, it just seems so ridiculous. I mean, when you look at it from, you know, 60 years later, it it looks ridiculous. It feel I mean, it feels cruel, right, to put this young man who's lost so many friends, who's seen so much death, who's had to take life in this situation where he has to replay this moment that was in the middle of it again and again, just this, this comes back to this idea of re-traumatization. Right. Exactly. So, and it does. And the one thing too, is that I, I did a chapter of course, on the Akimel Otham way, I suppose, of war, you know, death was considered this horrible thing that, that doesn't come naturally. It, it, you know, you have to be killed either by disease or by starvation or, or, are in war, death is, is, is something that you don't want to be around. And so uh, the, uh, the autumn people, uh, they had ceremonies that would remove the taint of death. So I should ask this, does Ira get the benefit of those ceremonies? Did he go through that? Do we know? No, he did he not. He didn't? No. So, so not only does he not you know, in in his return, go through this process that culturally, you know, connects him to the way his people deal with this horrific experience that he's gone through. But then also he's, as we've said, going again and again and again, you know, exposing himself to these memories of death. That's a lot. And and like a lot of veterans, he finds self-medication through alcohol. He, he was drinking a lot. and Well, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a different kind of... Let me, let me say something, though, too, is that he did have the Presbyterian Church, but it wasn't the kind of ceremonial thing that they had in the past. Ira had uh, a good deal of that, he was involved in the church, but 
one of the, one of the things is that there was a culture of alcohol that actually followed prohibition. And that was one of the things that said, well, okay, the way you get rid of or you help yourself out when you, uh, you know, you're feeling bad or you have the thousand yard stare, you have combat neurosis, as they called it at the time. What you need to do is just relax, get a pat on the back, relax and have a drink. That was a, a big, big thing. At this point in American history, many men, even if they weren't veterans, were drinking. Many people were drinking. But, but a lot of veterans, when they came home, were drinking to self-medicate. But they weren't in the spotlight like Ira Hayes was at that time. And, and this is where we get to this point in which, as you've written, Ira Hayes becomes an object of pity. And there's this this trope, this very, very terrible stereotype that Ira falls into as his post-war life is documented in the newspapers and magazines from that time. He was the... The drunken Indian. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, it, it was a... It was kind of this this fall from grace, Shakespearean <laughs> uh, tragedy uh, of stereotype that that captured him. Now, I got to say another thing about his uh, his drinking was that was another part of of labor too. He was mostly a, a worked on farms, and what everybody did, no matter what who you were. You work hard all week, and then it's time to relax on the weekends. So relaxation meant going out and have some drinks. Now, out in Arizona at the time, boy, the racism was really, really bad news. And he was apparently arrested 50 times within a span of 10 years. That's five times a year he's thrown in in jail. I think... And, and I looked up some statistics on this, uh, Mexican-Americans, farm workers, Indians, and black people in Arizona uh, were seen inebriated. They were arrested. For most of the white folks that were, that were drunk and disorderly, they were given a citation. It even got so bad that they had to set up a kind of, I guess it would be called more of, of a flop house than any place else, and they called it, they called it El Camino de los Winos. The Street of the Winos. Yes, sir. And, and uh, that was one of the things is because it was primarily, they were primarily arrest, arresting any kind of brown people. So here you have this guy who comes home to a literal hero's welcome, but then as he's readjusting into life, He's struggling with this thing that a lot of people are struggling with at the time, except for that's layered upon the racism at the time. But you've written that, you know, his life was more complex than this simplistic story of a fallen hero lost to addiction. And you really stress that what this is, is a story about undiagnosed and untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Yes, I believe that, too. I, I really do. His drinking also led to the assumption, and, and it didn't. It was an assumption that he actually died of alcoholism. 
he did have something to drink, but it was that the night before he died, he had some, uh, I believe it was Muscatel wine, which is fairly low content in alcohol content. I guess he just went out and said, decided to sleep it off. He, he actually died of hypothermia. Yeah. Of the, and this was just a couple of months after the dedication of the Iwo Jima War Memorial, right? And which is really just, just 10 years after the war. And then, then this life was gone. Yes. Yeah. In some ways, dying at the age of, of 32, uh, he made it quite a ways <laughs> compared to a lot of other Indian people. He had a brother and a sister who died when they were children. He had another brother, I think, who died in, their, in his 20s. Uh, after Ira died, I think that his brother Kenneth was the only one of the siblings still alive. Tom, I'm I'm a veteran. I'm also a journalist who has covered veterans' issues for years, and it's it's often seemed very clear to me that the problem with the hero worshiping of veterans, the lionization of people who have served, is that when we put someone on a pedestal, the the higher that pedestal is raised, the harder it is to keep one's balance on it, and. You know, Ira Hayes didn't think of himself as a hero, but he comes home to this hero's welcome, and then he has to go stand in that light while at the same time struggling with what was likely to be a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt. We know from his own words that he suffered from survivor's guilt. Uh, We know from the context of his life that he suffered from post-traumatic stress. And in that light, it just seems like a terrible and sad end was almost inevitable. He was really set up to struggle and, and to fail, sadly. I'm, I'm really afraid that's true. I, I, you know, I hate to say it because that, that seems to be true for a, a lot of guys. You know, I mean, right now, the, the uh, veteran suicide rate, you know, from guys coming from the Iraq war and Afghanistan and, and that sort of stuff, it's very, very high. Suicide rate is incredibly high. <laughs> I, I just don't understand that if, you know, if you're going to be considered a hero by society, then why isn't society, you know, a little bit more uh, cognizant of the problems that you come home with? What did you get coming home? that Ira Hayes and so many other Native veterans, and and maybe more broadly speaking, veterans in general, didn't have access to in terms of the support needed to come home and transition successfully? Well, I had a bunch of family members. That was part, I guess, of my generation, you know, back then, was that we still had a lot of World War II and Korean veterans around who we knew and could talk to. For uh, natives in general, there were a couple of kinds of ceremonies that are done that are either designed to heal or to honor uh, veterans. And that was one thing that that I I began to appreciate when I went up and uh, started teaching at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. I said I I met uh, several Ho-Chunk veterans up there, and I heard this one talk. It was a 
older man. He was, I think he was a World War II veteran who was calling for an honor song for one of the veterans. And they brought me up. I remember him saying, he's, we honor these veterans, not only because they're brave, but by seeing death on the battlefield, they know the greatness of life. You know, and, and I really have taken those, that kind of attitude to heart. And I think a lot of Indian people did that you have seen and done things that other people can only imagine, really. And it's not necessarily, you know, a glorious thing, but it's something of our experience that we might not revel in, but it's something that we know that we made it through. And we know also how many died at the same time. That's Tom Holm. He's a professor emeritus of American Indian Studies at the University of Arizona, an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation with Muskegee Creek ancestry, a Marine Corps veteran of the Vietnam War, and the author of a new book on Ira Hayes and the Price of Heroism. Tom Holm, thank you. You are welcome. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks a million. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday at noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider donating to support our program. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org slash UPR. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.